You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 28th of February 2019 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. Mr. Cohen, how, how long did you uh, how long did you work in the White House? I never worked in the White House. That's the point, isn't it, Mr. Cohen? No, sir. Yes, it is. No, it's not, sir. You wanted to work. No, it wasn't all a dream. Washington wakes the day after Michael Cohen's testimony before Congress. Was it the cue for a Republican bolt for the lifeboats? My guests Ivor Gaber and Benno Zog will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including Kim Jong-un's response to the first question he has ever been asked by a journalist, Ukraine's ongoing attempts to turn westward, and what would you declare a holiday in honour of? Austrians are about to get the chads. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24. And welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Ivor Gaber, Professor of Political Journalism at the University of Sussex, who is here in the studio in London, and Benno Zog, researcher at the Centre for Security Studies at ETH Zurich, who joins us from our Zurich Bureau. Welcome both. And we will start tonight in Washington, which is still trying to figure out what it watched yesterday when President Donald Trump's former attorney, Michael Cohen, testified before Congress that his former boss was, and indeed doubtless is, a crook, a con man, a liar, a bull- Fully a fraud, a racist, and not the kind of president you can trust to hand over power should an election tell him to. Trump, predictably, has sought to distance himself from the man he once described as his executive vice president, but whatever questions might reasonably be raised about Cohen's reliability as a witness, his performance did present other Republicans with quite the PR challenge. Um, Ivor, first of all, on that question of Cohen's uh, reliability, uh, those who started in on him yesterday did rather the point out that he is a you know convicted perjurer facing a three-year prison sentence for that and other things is i mean how much of cohen's testimony would you be willing to take to the bank i think this is um obviously the key question i had to believe him because firstly he's already been sentenced um there is no possibility of him getting a change of sentence, so I'm not quite sure what he had to gain. And secondly, what I think impressed me about his testimony was when he was asked to deliver the killer blow, was there collusion, which is obviously the collusion that is between candidate Trump and the Russians, which is the key question, which is the question which, if it was ever proven, would lead to impeachment. He said, I don't know. The senators danced around and tried to push him, but he said, I don't know. And I think that said to me that he is telling it as he saw it without elaboration, but with a certain amount of emotion, as as your words indicated. Uh, Benno, we'll come to the question of... of how House Republicans and Senate Republicans might respond to yesterday. But before we get to them, do you imagine that anything that Michael Cohen said yesterday will have shifted the opinion of any of Trump's base, the people who voted for him last time and might vote for him again? Well, you've listed some of the statements just earlier, listing that he was called a racist, a con man, that he's a cheat and so on. And if we're honest, none of these accusations are really new. Trump's voters, or at least the core of his voters, have known about these facts for a very long time. We have it on record that he's a misogynist um, who's talked demeaningly about women. He has talked about 
shithole countries in Africa run by black people. There's nothing new to that. But apparently this, this support base that Trump has, these people cheering at his rallies who have heard these statements before and may have believed them or may not have believed them or may have agreed with them, do not seem to care. But what we should not forget is we always focus on these redneck hillbillies, rust belt, um, losers of globalization that are part of Trump's voter base. But then again, he was not elected by merely these people. There's a very wide middle class in the United States, across states, um, that have elected him and have supported him in the campaign. And they may not agree with with um, any of these um, controversial statements Trump has made. But according to surveys, even though Trump is not as popular as it used to be. They don't seem to care that much. I think this kind of rhetoric will not really change their mind in the end when it comes to re-election in 2020. What they will very much focus on is, for example, whether there's tax cuts or other kinds of issues, maybe even immigration. Um, so this vast middle class is fairly passive and seems to focus on other things than this very aggressive rhetoric that Trump seems to campaign over and over again. Um, Ivor, it was noticeable yesterday, and this this may just be a, a hopeful, if not wistful, clutching at straws, that the, the Republicans uh, allowed to question Cohen focus rather more on discrediting him and his testimony rather than offering any meaningful defence of President Trump. Do you get the sense that there's some embarrassment at last starting to take hold among the GOP? I think there's some certainly damage limitation taking place that if push comes to shove, people need to to demonstrate, well, I, I, saw, I eventually saw through Trump, I didn't support him po- in 2019 onwards or whatever. I think there was an element of that. I think the poll numbers, for what they're worth, and we can agree that is a controversial statement, indicate that his base is not enough to get re-elected. I do think um, Benno raises the very good point that it's not all blue necks, blue necks, blue collar workers, <laughs> rednecks. <laughs> you've got the you've got the collar and the neck collar switched around there. Move um, supporting him. He does have some middle class voters, and I, I there are indications they are softer in terms of their support. So I think these are politicians being politicians. Cake and eat it. We yeah we did it for the pres. We really laid it on Cohen. We really made him look like a liar. But if push comes to shove, they can say, well, actually, no, I did not defend him. Uh, Benno, that's the key phrase there, I think, from either politicians being politicians. Is there going to come a point? And what what might prompt it, I guess, is the question at which politicians being politicians will decide that the time has come to disembark the Trump train? Well, it's debatable. So far, we've seen so many of these statements and so many uh, politicians in the Republican Party have stuck with Trump. And I think the, the example of Senator Lindsey Graham, for example, is very telling. He has been a critic of Trump. He's called him the, the world's biggest jackass, if I'm not mistaken, um, but actually has made a turn towards Trump and is now endorsing all kinds of policies of his. Um, I think the other day he was at a school in Kentucky and people asked him, about, well, these funds for this border emergency for the wall, where will they be taken? Will our school in Kentucky not be built? And uh, Lindsey Graham went at length defending this um, policy, saying that, well, but 
maybe you don't need the school as much, it's more important to have a secure border. Um, so there seems to be very little spine involved when it comes to these politicians. And I think the party system in the US um, makes it very hard for any kind of dissent within the Republican Party, because anyone kind of has to stick with more or less the party line to secure his or her re-election in 2020. Um, because this is really what it boils down to in the end that if people lose the favour of the president by criticising too much, they lose support from the party, may have to leave the party if dissent is really high, as long as there's no majority towards such a move, and we don't see that. So it's up for individuals to sacrifice a lot of their prospect to get re-elected, and obstacles to that, to really voicing dissent, apart from some small statements, is huge. Just a final quick thought on this, Ivor. Do you get the sense that there's any actual conviction among uh, Republicans maintaining their fealty to Trump or, or is it just expedience? Oh, it's um, hold on to nurse for fear of something worse. I mean, they do not. They would prefer Trump, most of them, and I take Benno's point, most of them would prefer Trump to any Democrat. And particularly the front runners of the Democrats seem to be pretty left wing by American standards. So I think um, they are making a very rational decision by hedging their bets and not being seen to be disloyal to Trump. But I think, as I said, hedging their bets because they're giving themselves an opt out clause if it needs be. OK, well, let's move along slightly, because while Cohen was singing to Congress yesterday, Trump was beginning the second of his summits with North Korean leader Kim Jong-un, a meeting of minds which has now ended sooner than anticipated, apparently due to North Korean insistence on sanctions relief, which the United States was not prepared to offer. It is therefore arguable that the most significant moment of the circus was a new experience for Kim, an unannounced question from a foreign or indeed any journalist. As assembled hacks were being ushered out of a photo call, one asked Kim if he felt confident. Kim replied that it was too early to tell, among other banalities. Um, Benno, given that Kim didn't really say anything especially interesting, he, he replied rather like a politician, in fact, uh, how significant a moment was that? Well, that would doubt that it's a really significant moment because otherwise um, we would have seen maybe a bit more substantial a statement. But it's still nice to see he's a leader in a country where journalism in the sense we understand it does not exist where people are rather cheered and ask all kinds of questions um, so it's kind of nice to see that but we shouldn't overemphasize it we should rather focus on the result or rather the non-result of this summit it is quite telling that it was it collapsed early not they did not even try to uphold the image of somewhat of a success with some kind of final statement and fully concluding the the itinerary that was planned so what we see is very much these events very fundamental disagreements that the North Korean regime is very keen on sanctions relief um, because there's a lot of economic pressure, particularly with the latest round of sanctions that was introduced in the last couple of years um, that have been pressuring the economy very much. Um, but there's a very fundamental disagreement, as I said, because all kinds of things that the US can offer, which is a relief of sanctions, a reduction of military exercises with South Korea, for example, maybe even a reduction of US troop presence in South Korea, maybe in favour of um, basing them in Japan, is not really enough for North Korea to denuclearize, as was always the mm, maximalistic um, requirement that negotiations took place under um, because denuclearizing, basically giving up the bomb, would mean that the regime is vulnerable and all these sanctions reliefs and reduction of troop presences could be reversed by the United States and their allies in a heartbeat. And then the regime in North Korea is there without protection. 
So this is a huge obstacle. And just allowing inspections, which will be a first step, inspections of nuclear facilities or giving up some of the nuclear facilities, as has been um, debated, is already a huge step. But it requires a lot of trust between parties to follow such a step. And just a few nice handshakes with Trump and a few nice words for him, whereas the whole political establishment in the West and in the US is still very suspicious of North Korea. It's just not enough to convince North Korea to take any of these drastic steps, hence the collapse of the talks, I think. Um, it's interesting, uh, Benno indicates how complex the issues are, and yet uh, Mr Trump, if we're to believe reports, went into this summit with virtually no preparation. Normally, uh, as people who've covered summits, summits know, that actually most of the, the work is done beforehand by people who we call Sherpas, hence summits, um, and they prepare a draft statement. The hard work is done. The, the top leaders are there for the photo ops to shake hands and agree on everything. Clearly, um, for whether it was by, by oversight or Mr. Trump's nature, he went into this conference without any of that work being done. He, he or his advisers were clearly surprised at the reaction they got from the North Korean leader. And we have this breakdown, which experienced diplomats, I was speaking to one today, said, what a surprise, not, you do not go into a summit to negotiate, you go into a summit to finalise, and that clearly didn't happen. Um, Benno, is, if, if we appear to have accomplished not all that much concrete uh, from these two meetings between Trump and Kim, and there is no word on when or if there will be a third, is it at least arguable that the fact they happened at all has been a good thing, that there is now an avenue of dialogue between Pyongyang and Washington, D.C., which does appear to have resulted at least uh, in North Korea having knocked off its, its rather tiresome missile tests? Well, to be fair, when it comes to negotiations with North Korea, if they even warrant the term negotiations, them ha happening in the first place is, as you indicate, actually a good sign and an improvement to, to, to previous years. I think with last year in particular, as I mentioned, that missile tests have not taken place. This is a positive sign and that's how progress is achieved with these very small incremental steps in the end and with direct talks happening face to face. So this is an improvement. Some commentators go as far as suggesting Trump and Kim and actually the South Korean president for the uh, Nobel Peace Prize, which is a bit far-fetched at this stage. But it certainly is a start. And we mustn't forget that even within Korea's, with South Korea's new president, there's been a lot of trust-building steps and meetings and with high symbolic value when they cross the, the border in the demilitarized de de zone together um, that are quite encouraging. Um, so we should focus on this step-by-step step improvement and on these symbols because that's how things start. Problem is always Trump raises hugely high expectations basically within a day claiming that he's solved the conflict and that should certainly not be taken um, for real, but we should focus on the more substantial stuff, as you mentioned. Ivor, is it at least arguable that none of this has done any harm? We're, we're, we're certainly not any the worse off, are we? For and, and however sort of venal and shallow Donald Trump's you know ambitions were here, I rather suspect that the Nobel Peace Prize uh, thing had occurred to him because Obama got one and he hasn't got one. But, but can it at least be said that we're none the worse off. 
Yes, no, I, I think that on a very practical level, the fact that nuclear tests aren't taking place is a great relief to the people of South Korea and of the people of Hawaii, actually the people of the world, frankly. Secondly, this is the first time that we've had a leader of North Korea who does seem willing to engage in a more positive way with the West than predecessors. Thirdly, um, I, I have not recently been in South Korea, but there is no doubt a more relaxed feeling in that country that at least they're not about to uh, suffer Armageddon. So, yeah, clearly, let's knock it. Uh, let's not knock it. Um, let's recognise the progress it is. I do hope there's a third round, but I do hope they do their homework first. Okay, we're going to take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Ivor Gaber and Benno Zog. Coming up next, the ongoing struggle for the geopolitical soul of Ukraine. How do Europe's business leaders start their day? Everyone's seeing the possibility of what reforms could do to unleash the power of the Indian economy is really exciting. Who tracks the stories that really matter like no one else? You're going to take so much money out of the Greek economy that they can't possibly generate growth. You have to manage a transition to a more private-oriented economy. Where can you have a real conversation to kickstart your working day? Uh, you, you don't mean the referendum on gay marriage, do you? <laughs> I don't. Uh, which Although is coming that was up, surprising. Very interesting. And the International New York Times has a piece. They assume that it will be passed. Mm -hmm. The answer to all these questions is The Globalist on Monocle 24. Weekdays at 7am in London. You're back with Midori House with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Ivor Geber and Benno Zog. Now, anyone who doubts the relationship between geography and political destiny need only spend a moment pondering Ukraine, physically lodged between Russia and Europe and spiritually much the same. Most of Ukraine's recent internal strife and its partial invasion by Russia are expressions of this contest, which has manifested in a couple of recent stories. President Petro Poroshenko has had another lash at passing anti-corruption legislation aimed at least in part at making the EU likelier to extend visa-free travel to Ukrainians, and Ukraine has withdrawn from this year's Eurovision Song Contest after their chosen contestant, Maruv, objected to political constraints Ukraine's government wished to impose, including a ban on playing in Russia. Um, Benno, first of all, to the anti-corruption legislation, uh, there is a presidential election on March 31st. Is, is Poroshenko serious about this, or is he just doing election stuff? Well, to be fair, corruption has been on the political agenda in Ukraine forever almost, and it's remained an issue. So, as we can measure from that, success is not really high. There's been small improvement in Ukraine's corruption perception in the past years, but the big breakthrough that Poroshenko certainly promised in his past campaigns have not really taken place. So part of the rhetoric can certainly be attributed to upcoming election, where Poroshenko is not the frontrunner according to the polls. Um, so he really has to make an effort to kind of make it clear on what, what, what side of things he is. But he himself is an oligarch after all. He's one of the top 10 richest men in Ukraine with, with all that comes with it. And oligarchy is very much what people are um, so tired of, of these influential business people buying politics and buying uh, buying all kinds of wealth, whereas people are, are suffering and the economy is stagnating. 
So this latest move, when when uh, this the constitutional court withdrew this previous anti-graft law, is certainly not encouraging. Um, but we'll see maybe in the upcoming few days whether Poroshenko is a bit more serious about this particular thing. Um, Ivor, is it correct to look at this anti-corruption push by Poroshenko as part of that attempt by some within Ukraine to turn Ukraine into more of a European country and to weave it more tightly into EU structures? Well, Ukraine is a paradox. Um, On one level, it aspires to be a Western European country. It was desperate to become a member of NATO. It wants closer relations with the EU. On the other hand, and I've worked in Ukraine over a period, it's a very Russian place. I always, it always reminds me when I work in Africa, people have this ambiguous relationship to South Africa. They aspire to it, but they also resent its influence. And similarly in Ukraine, they resent Russia, but it's everywhere. And people often aspire to it in a sort of way in, in, in terms of success. It sort of represents success. So, I mean, as, as Benno said, Poroshenko is very much... Um, in the Ukraine, the post-Soviet Ukrainian tradition of a of a, a successful businessman with very strong media links, he controls one of the main commercial t- television channels, using them remorselessly, and I have to say the great hopes that many of us in the West had for it was the Yellow Revolution, I recall in in Ukraine. Um, d- didn't amount to much because the basic structure of the society of which corruption, you could argue, and there are political scientists um, who would argue, is the oil that lubricates the society in the absence of a centralised state, in the absence of the Communist Party holding things together. It was corruption, if you like, that held it together. So uh, I'm not shrugging my shoulders and saying ever thus, but I I only see this as window dressing. I don't think there's going to be significant change. Uh, Benno, we should address the Eurovision row because it's 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 always nice when the Eurovision Song Contest becomes political, despite Eurovision's eternal attempts to be anything but. Um, Eastern Europe in general has always, and I think for fairly understandable nationalistic wanting to establish a nation regions taken Eurovision slightly more seriously than most regions. So within Ukraine, how big a deal is a political row that means that they just will not be attending this year? Well, to be fair, as you mentioned, Eurovision has been politicised many times, particularly by Eastern European countries and by Ukraine as well. So when they won in 2016, it was with a very political song, basically talking about Stalin's um, deportation of the Crimean Tatars, so as political as it could get. Um, So given that and given they've hosted the Eurovision in 2017 with big celebrations and it was already quite political at the time, we can assume that this time it will be similar. I'm not actually sure how people will react to the fact that um, this time in Israel, Ukraine will not compete, um, given that not just a front runner has declined to accept these terms, this, this contract and perform, but also the two next in line have done the same. Um, so there's a bit of a refusal maybe by this kind of artist community to be instrumentalised for political reasons. And I would assume that people who very much know, particularly even from um, 
in, with upcoming elections, political discourse is very strongly about this nationalist and symbolism and um, trying to kind of uh, mobilize people around the flag um, that they may be tired of that as well. But I haven't heard voices from my friends in Kiev yet. I wouldn't be surprised if people don't care that much about it because they have other more urgent concerns for sure in their everyday life. But they were the favorites, weren't they? They could have got the Eurovision Song Contest back to Kiev next year and excluded the Russians yet again. I mean, I'm being slightly cynical but there was quite a bit to play for wasn't there there sure was apparently they according to experts and so on had some some really nice good chances and i've listened to the song it's a typical eurovision song in a way kind of a catch-all thing that could become quite popular could you give us a sample <laughs> uh, we, we do do our level best for very, very good reasons to discourage sing-alongs on the Dory House. Uh, and I, I'm going to forestall any such attempts to break that rule by, by moving swiftly along to our final item tonight, uh, which takes us to Austria, where a new law will allow every citizen to enjoy a frisson of life as a deranged emperor and declare their own bank holiday, presumably in honour of themselves, should they feel like it. This is a response to a long irritation glitch whereby most Austrians are obliged to work on Good Friday, except for some religious denominations who get the day off. The European Court of Justice ruled last month that this constituted religious discrimination, and so it has now been decided that everyone uh, can pick a day of their own. Um, this is such a strange story that everyone doesn't get Good Friday off. Do I see the thing is I, I I approach this. I'll ask you first, Ben. Now I approach this as a freelancer. Therefore, I frequently don't realise bank holidays are actually happening until I can't understand why nobody's answering my emails, and then I check the date and go, oh yeah, normal people have the day off. Um, is this as strange as it sounds that a a portion of a population are given a day off because of what they choose to believe, while another portion aren't? Well, um, I guess I'm one of these normal people who indeed take the day off if, if they're not obliged to go to work. And in Switzerland, Good Friday has always been a public holiday. Um, so I was actually surprised to read that in Austria, it's only the Protestants, a few hundred thousand in the country, who had this day off automatically, and all the others did not. But I, I've scanned the, the Austrian news earlier, and it's actually quite hilarious just to debate about it. Um, because the way it came about was there was this debate that some were, I wouldn't say jealous, but said that it's kind of an injustice that Protestants have this day off and the others haven't. So there was kind of debate about, well, some people have the day off, now everyone should get the day off. Then the government suggested a compromise, which is everyone gets half a day off. And in the end, with the involvement of the European Court of Justice, um, where people can kind of pick this holiday, but I don't think overall they get an additional day off. They have to take this day off from their regular stock of, of, of holidays, um, which is, I don't know, four weeks or five weeks a year. Um, so in the end, nobody really got a holiday, which is absolutely ridiculous. People react accordingly. Um, and one commentator on Twitter basically said, imagine a leftist government with a Muslim interior minister who had suggested um, taking Good Friday as a holiday away from Protestants. It's, it's quite hilarious. It is remarkable.
Uh, I mean, I, I can't get uh, too uh, sanctimonious about this coming as I do from a country which gives at least one state a day off for a horse race, uh, that being Melbourne Cup Day, first Tuesday in November, which most of the rest of the country takes off anyway. Um, but I did want to ask you both, were you given the chance that Austrian citizens are about to be given to just choose a day off and declare it a holiday, which which you will observe yourself even if nobody else does, what would you pick? I will ask you first, Ivor, what, what, what would be a good holiday? Can I have 10 seconds to make a serious point? Very, oh, go on. Very, that actually in this country, for example, people of the Jewish faith do take their own, if you like, religious holidays off in addition, and it doesn't raise the sort of issue that is being raised here, but I just make that in passing. And also to point out that I understand Cambodia has 28 days of public holidays, so that's not a bad place to be. However, in answer to your question... 28 days in one go or scattered throughout scattered, the year? Scattered, scattered. Okay. Austria has 13, which isn't bad. You're just above the European average. Anyway, to come back to your serious question, um, I'm going to give a serious answer because I feel rather strongly at this particular time about it. I would like to, this country to have a... That's the UK, to have a bank holiday in honour of European unity. That's a tough sell just at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> it is, but it would be so worthwhile. Can you see how upsetting it would be for half the country? I'd love it. Um, Benno, I'll put the same question to you. If you were able to declare a national holiday or just even take the day off and hope other people follow you, what would you pick? Would you would you pick a date as Ivor would largely to annoy half of your fellow citizens or would you make a more positive statement? I think this is a very noble thing to do, to pick a day that upsets all kinds of people. So I support <laughs> that for the UK. Um, whereas myself, just look at, reflecting on that today's issue of, of Midori House just happened to be male-dominated. Um, all the more reason to pick the 8th of March, International Women's Day. Although I'm quite concerned, the city of Berlin, or the state of Berlin, has actually done that recently, declared a public holiday. Um, but a bit, I'm a bit concerned that business and happy consumers will turn this day as well, just like any other holiday, into a commercialised thing. And then we can go on for 364 days of continuing discriminatory practices against women to some extent. Um, so maybe we should make sure to just make every day of the year a Women's Day, a Man's Day, a Children's Day, a Humanity Day. And I've just noticed, and I should notice before, the European Parliament has, uh, has said that 9th of May should be European Union Day. There we are. Uh, well, you know, I, Ivor says it, it happens. Uh, that does bring us to the end of today's show. Ivor Geber and Benno Zog, thank you for joining us at Midori House. The show was produced by Ben Ryland, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Our studio manager was May Lee Evans. More music next at 1900. It's The Urbanist. There's more on the day's main stories on The Daily at 2200. Midori House returns at 1800 London time tomorrow. I'll be your host for that as well. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening.